We are going through the book of Acts, um, as we do every book of the Bible, uh, because it is my charge to preach, you know, the entire counsel of the Word of God. I, I think topical preaching is probably good in some degree. It's entertaining. But I think going through the Bible uh, text by text is, is really what, you know, God intends for us to do. So, you know, we, we have that entire counsel. Sometimes the placing and timing of a book is important and relative to, um, I, I do pray about it. And of course, I already mentioned this. In going through the book of Acts, um, this is where we get the model of how to do church. And um, today there's a lot of ideas about church and how to do church. And people are trying all kinds of methodologies and tactics and strategies to attract people to church. And not all those are evil, and some would probably be benign. I, I suppose some of them might be in terms of honoring God, not quite appropriate. But I, I just want us the church family not to lose sight of God's methodology, what God intends for a church to be. God's blessed us, we're going forward, and I don't want to lose sight of that. And sometimes in a text, the application can be difficult, and today's application would be different and unique. And when we get there, I trust you'll just keep that in mind. So, with that said, let me invite you to stand. We're going to begin our reading all the way back in chapter 1 for the sake of context. Our reading really for today starts in verse 14, but I feel like it'll be helpful in terms of explanation to begin where this event that is being described by Peter, beginning in verse 14, occurs. So, verse number 1 of chapter 2 of the book of Acts, of course, written by Luke. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. This would have included the 12 disciples now, and probably the larger group of 120. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a sound of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues of, like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. Now this is, would have been visible, not just to these people, but perhaps the surrounding uh, group of individuals there in Jerusalem. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, began to speak with tongues and other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews and devout men. These have been proselytes uh, to the Jewish religion, out of every nation under heaven. And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together, and notice these words, and they were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Of course, this is what tongues is about, the supernatural enabling of a person to speak another language that was known, uh, Russian, Chinese, whatever it might be. And verse 7, and they were all amazed, and they marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? In other words, they're speaking in languages they shouldn't, be, they shouldn't, they shouldn't know. And, and these are simple, uneducated men, and how, how can they know these languages? Now, verse number 12 um, after they give this list of people who were there. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Like, what are we seeing? What is happening? There's something obviously supernaturally occurring, and what does it mean? A few others, verse 13, were mocking and said, These men are full of new wine. Our text for today. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judah, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, about nine. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
And it's, now he's quoting Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And the word prophesy here uh, just simply means to, to speak forth, to declare. In this case, they were declaring the glory of God. And they were doing this in other languages that other people could understand. Verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And so we have a graphic description that goes along with these events. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Again, this all is a quotation from Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, quotation ends. Ye men of Israel, Peter speaking, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, you would have seen this and heard about this, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, by the hand of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And now Peter gives a second quotation of the Old Testament. This is in the book of Psalms, chapter 16. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because that will not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption, decay. Thou hast made known to me the way of life, and thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. End of quote. Peter again, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, whom he just quoted, that he is both dead and buried. And his sepulchre's grave is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, speaking of David, acting as a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would rise up a Christ, this is a God-man, to sit on his throne. Now, David knew this was going to happen. God told him this. He, David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did not see corruption. So he's saying, David foresaw this of the Christ, that his soul would not see this corruption. So this Jesus, who is Christ, hath God raised up, wherefore we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God, this is a, a, another psalm being quoted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. So he's finally gotten to the answer, what does this mean? Christ has sent his spirit. For David is not ascended into heaven, but he said to himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Another Old Testament quote. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that, the, that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and and Christ. Now, when they heard this, 
they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, a second question, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall, the idea is also, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Our Holy Father, I pray the next few moments that, Lord, you would, oh Lord, help us understand, Lord, these Old Testament quotations, Lord, what, this, this is the very first of Peter's sermons. Lord, what is being explained here by him in answer to the question, what, Lord, not only to what shall we do, but what does this mean? And Lord, I'll ask for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing for that length of time. The text we are studying this morning follows the dramatic um, gifting of the Holy Spirit to the disciples who had been assembled together in Jerusalem, perhaps in an upper room or a court outside of Jerusalem, but they were all together in one place having received this great gift. God's Spirit had descended from heaven as Jesus promised twice would happen, and this Holy Spirit rested upon each of the followers of Christ. And in so doing, supernaturally enabled them to praise and glorify God. The Bible says the wonderful works of God were declared through their lips in languages that they themselves did not know. But the hearers in Jerusalem, they're gathered on this day of Pentecost, could all understand in their own native tongue. Jews and devout men from all over the world, or I should say all over the known world, had gathered in Jerusalem as they were instructed to do by the Old Testament on this one of three annual feast days. It was a commandment for them to come, and this was a day when men from Judah all over the world, now residing in other countries, had come back to Jerusalem, and they witnessed, and they heard what had just happened. As the text describes, these Jewish, predominantly devout men and proselytes as well, they were marveled by what they saw. They, were, they marveled by what they heard. These words, amazed, marvel, confounded. Uh, they were perplexed, if you will. Now, a few of these observers, of course, jested. They, they couldn't comprehend this at all. They just kind of made light of it. Well, these men, they're babbling. They just must be, must be drunk. Um, that was the easy explanation for these men. But the vast majority of onlookers, as I'm sure we would have been, were just in amazement by what they saw and what they heard. And spoken probably with multiple voices and multiple languages, they were asking, what does this mean? What is happening around us? So Peter uses this occasion, as a, this occasion as an opportunity. And he stands forth as a divinely appointed representative of the larger group of disciples, probably 120 or more, including the 12. And he begins to declare in the Greek an explanation. This is the Greek in our text. And he answers the question, what does this mean? And what ensued is the first Christian sermon ever preached by someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins by asking for the audience's attention. Can I have your attention, please, he asks. And no doubt he elevates himself to a place where he can broadcast his voice, because we know the end, over 3,000 people respond 
to this sermon, Peter begins his reply. In verse number 15, Peter offers a quick and cursory response and dismissal to the accusation that what they're witnessing is something carnal, something fleshly, something in the world, that, that they would be drunken. He, he says, you know, it's nine o'clock in the morning. There's not time for this anyway. But he just dismisses this with a single thought, a single verse. And then he moves on in verse 16 to begin to explain that what they are witnessing is in fact a supernatural event. It is a gift of God that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And he begins to quote the first of three references found in the Old Testament scripture. Now, in so doing, Jews were reverent. They were mindful of the law. They were mindful of the word of God. And so the minute that Peter begins an offered explanation of the Old Testament, no doubt people stopped in their tracks and began to listen. Right. Hey, wait a minute. He, he's, he's quoting the prophet Joel. He's, he's saying, he's offered explanation from the word of God. And no doubt people began to stop and listen out of a, a measure of reverence and, of course, just probably great curiosity as well. And as soon as he began to quote Joel chapter 2, now this would have been of incredible interest to the Jews. Um, no doubt they now began to listen in rapt attention. At the core of Jewish hope was the advent of a descendant of David whom they called the Messiah or the Christ. They understood by their Old Testament teachings that a descendant of David would come and once again ascend to the throne and that he would be in the image of God and like God and have great power and he would sit on a throne and he would raise up Israel to great prominence and that he would judge the world. And this was their hope. This is what they lived for. Uh, this, this is what they wanted to happen more than anything else in the world. And all of a sudden, they're seeing something supernatural happening around them. And they're wondering what it means. And this guy, simple Galilean, stands up and he begins to quote Joel chapter 2. And they're thinking, what in the world? Like, what, what are you saying? You, you are talking about the end of the world and the coming of the Messiah. They believed that not only that this Messiah would elevate them, which, which they politically they wanted so badly, but they, they were tired of oppressors. They were tired of Rome. Their history with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they had this idea, they, they wanted the world judged, and the Messiah was supposed to do this with fire and a rod, a rod of iron. So when Peter begins to say in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, their brains were churning. Peter's connecting what they had just witnessed in the text to Joel chapter 2 as God's Spirit being poured out on ordinary Jewish men as Joel said one day would happen. Now, were they immediately connected that this is what was happening or not? They're having to think now, wait a second, something's happening here that is this crazy, it's different. And the Old Testament said in Joel 2, like this guy saying, that ordinary people would begin to prophesy, declare the praise of God, and, and that's what we're seeing. But they also are thinking, now wait a second, that event is connected to the end of times, uh, when, when, when Christ will be revealed in fire and judgment. Now, let me stop here and say, in the Old Testament, often events that spanned hundreds of years, if not thousands, were connected side by side. And so in Jewish, in, in, in God's thinking here, the coming of Christ 
um, as he has already done and will come again. And his second advent are just like this in his timetable. You know, we, we describe it in terms of 2,000 years or more. The Lord come back quickly. But, you know, like this. But the Lord just basically says they're going to speak in tongues. And then, he's, you know, his second advent is going to come and, you know, in fire and judgment. So there's just some, it's a lot of history compressed in Joel. But that's how their minds would have thought about it. They're saying, he, he's suggesting all of a sudden that the Messiah may have come and that the end of the world and our elevation with it. So Peter was suggesting this great event of eschatology. And so again, you would understand to this group of Jews why they would have stopped and listened to this Galilean fisherman. This was a bold and dramatic reference that had to either create great angst in their hearts, who does this guy think he is? Or even further curiosity. And so Peter continues in verse number 32, and now he begins to add something that's a vital element. I, I, I'm just telling you that what you're seeing is connected to Joel chapter 2 and God's pouring out spirit. And yes, last days are coming. And, and by the way, there's this question that everyone should be asking, how would anybody be saved in God's judgment? How they want to survive this? And Joel answers this question as does Peter and Acts, that those who call upon the name of the Lord, the Messiah, the coming Christ, the one who will judge, only those people who recognize him, now listen, and who know him and who follow him, only those people can be saved. Okay, we're, we're creating a dilemma here. You follow me? A dilemma for them. And so those who call on the Lord. So here Peter pauses. And this is not in the text, but it's in the way I would have done it. <laughs> Here Peter pauses and he lets that sink in. There's judgment coming. This is the beginning of it. The Holy Spirit's come. And he's allowing people to speak in other tongues, other languages. They're praising God. That means that the end is coming. And who can abide the coming of the Lord? Only those people who know Him. This, this is where P Peter's taking them. So he lets all that sink in. And here's where, he go, here's where he goes from there. He says, This Messiah, who will usher in the world's judgment, and whom must be followed, called upon to be saved, and here's the punchline, it, it was and is the Lord Jesus Christ, whom, by the way, you crucified. Okay, I'll stop there again for a moment. Now what's this audience to think? Okay. They are legitimately seeing something supernatural happening in front of their eyes. They just witnessed it. An explanation is offered. This is what, this is something that Joel prophesied. The Holy Spirit would be given. This would usher in the end of the days. And, and, and so their mind is thinking, wait, is, is he saying the Messiah is coming? And Peter says, no, 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 no. The Messiah has already come. And more than that, you missed him. And more than that, you killed him. Okay, now, if, if, okay, just you got to think, this had to just make their minds spin. Okay, first of all, did he come really? These people had heard of the fame of Christ. What the, the miracles he did was known and broadcast abroad. Whether they were there or not, this had, this had gone throughout all Judea. Into all, people had, whether they believed or not, they knew about Christ. They had heard about this. And then they got to be thinking, oh, wait a second, Peter. That man is 
dead. But also there was this rumor swirling about Jerusalem that the grave that he had gone to had been vacated. They heard the story of the Roman soldiers who were terrified and ran away. They heard a story about an angel who moved it. Whether they had seen him or not in the 40 days that he had appeared, no doubt these men had heard the stories, the rumors. Now, I'm trying to get you in the mind of these people listening to this sermon. Jewish men who had this hope of the Messiah, they're witnessing something that jives with Joel chapter 2. Jesus did many amazing things, and Peter just suggested the one whom they crucified is the Messiah. And their brain thinking, wait a minute, how can the Messiah die? Peter says, it's Jesus Christ, whom God, the word in the text, is accredited, approved, and whom you delivered by wicked hands. And he's speaking in a generality, not just the Jews, but mankind. Well, you handed him over to be crucified and slain. Now, these people had to be filled with emotion with this. Probably anger at this point, maybe. Uh, indignation. And maybe just even Christ, the Messiah, couldn't possibly be crucified. He's the God-man. That could not happen. So, this is all happening. Peter is being masterful in his sermon. And so, this mix of emotion, this uncertainty, perhaps angst and anger, this, I might, I might call it incredulous bewilderment now is in their hearts. And they're asking their mind, can this be true? Could the Messiah, no, it's not possible the Messiah should be crucified. So Peter stops now after my supposed pause and he begins again. Verse 22, he offers a proof that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, and that God in the background was working through his life. Look at verse 22. He said this much, and now verse 22 he continues. He says, now you men of Israel, hear this. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, you've heard about him. You've heard about his miracles. You've heard about who he was and what he did. This was a man approved. The word means again accredited. He, 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 he had God's hand upon him. This man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. And who can work miracles and wonders and signs but God, the Son of God, the descendant of David, the, the, the God-man, the Christ, the Messiah. Who could do that but Him? He did this. You heard this. This man approved of God by among him, but among you, um, you crucified, he said. He walked in the midst of you, verse 22, as you yourselves know. So this is something that they heard about. Verse 23, but him being delivered. So now he's answering the question that they only have in their minds, but he was delivered. The reason he died was not because you just chose for, it, for him to die, but him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You took him and you crucified him. But everybody's saying, but it was all part of God's plan. So that's how it can happen. In other words, yes, he was the Messiah. Yes, he was the Christ. Yes, he was the God-man. And he was crucified because this was part of God's plan. God, through him, and Christ being deity, a proof, you know he worked miracles. You heard about him, you saw them. 
You saw the wonders. You saw the signs. He manifested his deity as only deity could do by manipulating the creation that he himself created. He commanded nature and it obeyed him. He commanded the elements and they multiplied in fishes and loaves. He commanded the sea to to become calm and it did. He turned water into wine. He demonstrated his authority over the spiritual world in the lives of possessed individuals. Only God, only the God-man, only the Messiah, only the Christ could do that. And these people knew that. No doubt they had dismissed. They knew these things, but when Christ died, maybe their hope died with that. Others probably listened to the voice of the Pharisees who said, oh, it's not by God's power he did these things, but by the power of Beelzebub of the devil, a great blasphemy that no doubt many of them believed. But Peter looks at him and says, he did it. And you know it. And they're kind of stuck. His death can be explained in this way. Yes, you killed him. Yes, you led him to the cross. But that was only done by the, the determinative foreknowledge of God. The word foreknowledge here doesn't, it means more than just know about. It means to, to put an action into motion. Here we see the great sovereignty of God intermingled with human responsibility that is beyond understanding. But, God, but Peter's saying God allowed it for a purpose. Humanity nailed to a cross, but God had other plans for the God-man. It was part of His plan and design. God's will, the Messiah should die and raise again for the salvation and restoration of Israel and the world. They were thinking political, He was thinking spiritual. Although the political will come. While the courts of men may have condemned Christ, the Messiah, a higher court would see Him resurrected in verse number 24. It's a fascinating verse. And uh, very quickly, verse 24, look there with me. He says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that, that he should be holden of it. <laughs> He's kind of saying this. In a, in a way, it really doesn't matter that you killed him, because death couldn't hold him anyway. And there's, there's just, there's just um, hinting, this, this pangs of death was used to describe the labor of a woman. And the idea here is no more than a woman can prevent a baby who's alive coming out can a grave hold the Son of God and keep him in its hold. Like it can't be done. So he's not, he's getting to this point, he's not really dead. The one whom you crucified He's ascended. The one you nailed to the cross and put in the grave, he's no longer there. The one that you thought could have been the Messiah in his death, you gave up on that. I am telling you, he is alive. Death could not hold him. The grave had no power to keep the Messiah, our Savior, the God-man, from resurrecting. And now Peter begins to offer another proof quoted from Psalms chapter 16, verses 25 through 28. Um, in our text. 
In Psalm 16, this is a Psalm of David. For take your time, I'm going to turn there. But you can reference it. Psalm 16 is a Psalm of David. And David's talking about his life, but begins in time to act the part of prophet and begins to speak of Christ. And he's prophesying about the Messiah. And he's saying in this text that the Messiah, that my Lord is ever before my face. David's saying that God, that the Christ who hadn't even come yet, was an encouragement to him. <clears throat> and David joyed and found strength in him. <clears throat> and he believed that the coming Messiah, see, they missed this, would face death, but not be overcome by death. That the Messiah would not see, he would die, but that he would not see decay. The same thing that Daniel says in chapter 9. That he, he, David foresaw the Messiah would come, a descendant of his, the Christ, and he would go to the grave, Sheol, hell, but it couldn't hold him. Right. Psalm 16, and then our text, and it would not see decay. In other words, the, the idea is, is he would continue to live. In verse 27, he says, Thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither <clears throat> will thou serve thine holy one to see corruption or decay. So stop here. Peter's saying this. David isn't talking about himself, obviously, and Peter's going to get that in a moment, <clears throat> because David's grave is right over here, guys. We see it. It's been undisturbed in all these years. It's still there, and David hasn't moved. So who's he talking about? David's still dead and buried, verse 29. So the question is, is so he says to his audience in a way, so who went to hell? If it wasn't David. Who was David talking about? He called him Lord, right? My Lord, the Lord who's ever before my face, the Lord who ever encouraged me, the Lord who was always with me. That Lord, he says, died. And he went to hell, Sheol, the grave. But it couldn't hold him. And it didn't decay him. It had, it had no ability to stop him. And he goes on to say that that Lord then would be raised. And so Peter's asking, who is he talking about and who fits that description? Right. Who's already come and performed miracles? Who already came and declared to be Christ? Who do you know who was killed by evil human hands, but you've heard the rumor he's alive? Who do you know who fits that description? Amen. This is brilliant. So the answer is this. They may have been asking, well, where is he? Okay, I'm just going through this progression. I'm just how I would think. Other people might think differently. Okay, okay, we'll, we'll buy this story so far. Okay, so he was, Jesus was Christ. He died. He went to hell, but couldn't hold him. He's resurrected. So where is he? That's what I would ask because that's my nature. And then <clears throat> the text goes on to say, it's a reference to uh, Psalm 16 and also Psalms 110, where David goes on to say, Therefore, being exalted, as the Old Testament scripture says, the Lord, quoting David, look up here for a second, the Lord said to my Lord, okay, wait, this gets confused. God said to my Lord, David speaking, the Christ man, his future descendant who is Christ, the Lord God, said to my Lord Christ, 
Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Speaking of the future millennial reign. And that's why this thing goes so quickly. He's, Peter's saying this, don't you guys even know the Bible? David said there was, a, there was one who walked with him, was ever with him, who was the source of joy and strength. And that that holy one, that holy one would go to the grave, but not see corruption. And that David went on to say that the Lord God said of his Lord to come sit down on his right hand until he make thy name thy footstool. So you want to know where Christ is? Okay, heaven's not up there. Heaven's other. He's at the right hand of God. And because he there, he's there, he did what Joel said in chapter 2. He's going to send forth his spirit to fill men who know him so they could prophesy and declare his glory. And he closes the loop and they have to be going, oh my. Because it all makes sense. They have all seen it and it all jives. Christ is exactly where God said he was supposed to be after his body did not see corruption as foreseen by David. He's sitting at the right hand of God in glory. And now tracking back to the original question, <clears throat> it is his it is the ascended and resurrected Christ who has set, sent down his spirit, verse 33, which you have just witnessed. And he's, now verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all Israel know God hath made, attested, that this Jesus, whom you crucified, and is now alive at the right hand of God, is both, whether you saw it or not, Lord and Christ. <laughs> and he stops. Peter, having masterfully used their own scripture, their own understanding of God's word, rests his case, and he has answered their question. Now, in verse 37, <laughs> these men hear this. It, it, it'd be, it, it's different for us. You know, the coming of the Messiah is not our, this, this singular hope that we have in the same way it was for them. They were waiting, they were hoping, I suppose the way some of us may be waiting for the second coming of the Lord right now. They had witnessed these things, they had seen these things, and all of a sudden all this begins to swirl, and the Holy Spirit begins to work in their mind, and all of a sudden now we see another, in my mind, even greater supernatural outworking of the Holy Spirit. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. <laughs> they knew it was true. And they said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what, what do we do? Now, you get the question. Let me explain this. What do people like us do who killed God's king? What do people like us do who crucified the Messiah? What do wicked men like us who missed this so badly, who maybe made false accusations, what do, what do incredibly Sinful men do. What hope do we possibly have? And then using both Joel and, of course, the New Testament, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. <laughs> it doesn't matter how guilty you are. You're all guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're uniquely guilty, but we're all guilty. Who's going to get saved? What's your hope?
well, not your religion, not your works, but whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yes, you killed the Messiah, but that was part of the predetermined foreknowledge and counsel of God. You, you need to do what every guilty sinner does, is you need to repent. You need to submit and yield to Christ, be willing to be baptized and submit to His authority. This is how we find the remission of sins, not by the washing of water, but rather by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. The very thing you just witnessed can happen to you too if you would just yield to Christ, acknowledge who He is, and be baptized in recognition of His authority and His deity. And that's what they did. And the Bible says 3,000 people were saved. What a sermon. You know, I, I look at this text and, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to engage you with the theology that's here. Okay. You need to go read these Old Testament texts, study the, It's just, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I, and I could stretch some applications here for us. And it's maybe because of my unique position as pastor that I take this away, but I want you to listen. Because this is part of the reason I engaged in the book of Acts in the first place. This text to me stands somewhat in contrast to what I see in what I'm going to call a contemporary westernizing Christian movement. And I'm speaking to us, and I'm speaking of Christianity in the Western world that has an emphasis on programs, methodologies, and activities that all have at their core some culturally relevant ideology. They're engaged in advertising, drama, contemporary music, and strategies. But none of them are comparable nor able to produce what the simple declarative preaching of God's Word can do. And I don't want that lost on this church family. Are those things evil? Not necessarily. But no methodology is probably truly benign. And I do believe the medium affects a message with all my heart. And there's a lot of things we can say about this, but here's what happened. A Galilean fisherman got up, he quoted the Bible authoritatively, filled with the Holy Spirit, and men's lives were changed. As Paul said, it was by God, he was pleased by the foolishness of preaching to save them which believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks wisdom. It's what, this, the, it's what contemporary Christianity is about. Hey, give me sights and sounds and bells and whistles because I, I want something that appeals to my emotion and or I want you to come over here and academically just give me principles so I can write a thousand things in my notebook. Or how about you just get this? Here's who Jesus Christ was and deal with that through authoritative preaching that appeals to people's spirit and conscience. People want all kinds of things out of the church. Today, so many are given to emotion and mood, some altruistic feel-good psycho pep talk. Many feign, you know, desire for precept and principle, and I'm not against it. It's just that's not a substitute for relationship with Christ. Right. 
But Paul said this, just preach Christ crucified. Because the foolish of God is stronger than men, men's wisdom, men's ways. For God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And here's my contention. All the flurry of the modern church, of the modern church world, may not necessarily be harmful, and I wouldn't be critical of all of it, but if we are not careful, it may not be helpful and maybe appeal to our flesh in a way that isn't always desirable. Here's my point, and I just want you to have an appreciation for this as the takeaway. Sacrificing preaching for anything else is a mistake. And you may be saying, we'll do it better. And I would understand that. And any preacher might feel that way. But there's something really special, unique, when a man who tries to preach the Word of God, who's empowered by the Holy Spirit, and something happens in the transition of those words from my mouth to your ear, and God speaks by His Holy Spirit to your heart, there's something amazing about that. And we cannot and should not, and we will not ever lose that. It is by preaching for all those who want something else, and I'm not saying anybody here does, that you and I are sometimes best confronted with who we are. Entertain me. Hey, buddy, you don't need entertainment. You need truth. Don't offend me by telling me how bad I am. Hey, I don't want to, but we are horrible people. And sometimes we need to hear it and deal with it and do business with it because only by that medicine can we ever hope to be better. I can't give enough therapy to make you be who you're supposed to be, but the Holy Spirit of God can. A man preached, God's Spirit came down. The apostles preached in Acts 4, 2, 5, 42, Acts 8, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 20, 28, preaching. The whole New Testament is about men going to different places and preaching. And you know, men didn't always repent, repent to it. But they were given the opportunity to. 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ sent me not to baptize. And not that it's not important. It's just not central to salvation. It's an act of obedience, submission to authority but to preach the gospel. And here's where my heart's at on this. He says, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. You know what he's saying? It might be possible to come to church and totally miss the point of being there. We could go through and engage in a whole lot of Christian activity and never nod or give attention to the cross. Don't talk to me about the blood of Christ. The atonement's too heady for me. Give me some precept. Give me some principle. Give me some truth. Help me raise my kids. It's not bad stuff. But if we're not careful, and all this we are attempting to do, and I'm not against Awanas in Sunday school, and all this, but God help us not to make the cross of Christ of none effect, not central, not prominent, 
not a priority. I don't know what other people are doing. I don't want that to ever happen here. I don't want the gospel to become forgotten and lost, set aside, marginalized, or left out. You know what men need today, what we need today, what you and I need today? We just need preaching from this book. I'm not against the other things. We have the other stuff. We're going to have it, but not, not the cost of this time. We need this book Savior. We need His death. We need to understand that He died for my sins and yours. We need His love and we need His grace. We need His truth. We need to be filled with His passion. And we need most of all sometimes just to be confronted, even if it's not fun. Then it will be mean and hateful preaching. Not about that. Don't intend to be about that. But sometimes we just need a black book that acts like a mirror more than anything else held up in front of us. This is who you are. And that's who He is. Reconcile that. Do business with it. We need to be more about humble repentance. A whole lot more about humble repentance. These people were asked to be baptized in a way that would put them at odds with the entire community they knew. That would make them ostracized and uh, disowned, disavowed by their own families. And sometimes you and I can struggle having a testimony for Christ at work. We need the preaching. I don't think I have the power to convince you to be a better person. I don't have that power. But I do believe that the Holy Spirit can through the Word of God. I can't make you do something, but I think God can. I think you and I need to try to grasp in a greater, utter appreciation all that Christ has done for us in His death, burial, and resurrection. God help us that we don't make that of none practical effect in our lives. You see, I, I could lead this church astray. I can make it all about programs and stuff. We have a great time here. And someone say, when was, the, when was the last time you preached the Bible? When was the last time you confronted us with the Word of God? See, I can be guilty of that. And everyone in this room can be guilty of making the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection none effect in your lives by the way you're choosing to live. There's just one answer to that. You need to be pricked in the heart. You need to repent. That means you need to change. So God help us. Let me ask you to stand if you would.